0: Our text today is Matthew chapter 16 verses 13 through 20. This is the word of the Lord. Now when Jesus came into the district of Cassarai Philippi, he asked the disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray. Father, we're so incredibly grateful for your word, for our ability to come here together and study it and to grow through it. So Lord, we ask you to impress these words upon our hearts and upon our mouths and upon our minds and that we carry them with us everywhere we go. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Good morning. Burr. It's cold. But other than I feel like Jared said last night, we skipped fall, and it does kind of feel like we skipped fall. There's at least a foot of snow on the picnic table outside, but we're not here to talk about the cold. Well, it is cold, but thankfully we have the warmth, the warmth of the church here. We are going to talk about how perceptions and presuppositions matter, And, and perceptions and presuppositions matter because they're what guide what we think about everything, especially what we think about people. Our perceptions of people will impact how we approach them, how we treat them. This is part of the foundational sin problem that exists in racism, right? Hating a particular group of people because of some type of cultural or external marker, a perception or a presupposition. This is also the irony of the anti-racism campaigns right now. They just create a different type of division which makes different sets of presuppositions, you know, all of your microaggressions for the things that you have all done wrong today just by your very existence. But this all exists because instead of taking this biblical view of the sinful humanity, right, there's new perceptions, new presuppositions that are created that just create more cultural division. We know this. We see this all the time. That's why we speak about the family of God here about brothers and sisters united in Christ, about the body, the the church Catholic, like we were talking about just a minute ago, because that actually dictates how we treat each other. It dictates our responsibilities to each other, our accountabilities to each other. It's why we talk about all people being image bearers of God, all people being image bearers of God. And, And that fact that all people are image bearers of God will impact how we treat them, how we deal with them, how we engage with them. Just think about how loving our enemy, that's something that we can only do if we have a particular set of presuppositions or perceptions. They dictate how we act, how we see the world. They matter. And what we think about things really matters. It's why we, we talk about the heart so much, something being on your heart. Right? We, we know that this idea of the seat of the heart, the seat of the heart dictates our actions. What, what we feel here will dictate what our, our fingers do here. We, we live our theology, whatever it is, in our fingertips. Right? We live our theology in our fingertips. So if our perceptions and our presuppositions are so important in the manner in which we act with other human beings, how much greater will they be when we think about who Jesus is? How much greater should our perceptions and presuppositions be when we think about who Jesus Christ is? And I will tell you, and I don't think this will come as a surprise to any of you, that there is a perception and a presupposition problem in the greater church today on what they think about Jesus, what they think about Jesus' authority, and it actually impacts how the church in today's culture lives as a church, or in many cases fails to live as a church. It's unfortunate. It's because of this perception problem of not knowing who Christ really is, but it it impacts all of these Christians and how they fail to live out their theology, for how they fail to live for all of Christ, for all of life. And this has to change. And that's what we're going to see today, that Jesus is going to challenge the apostles, the disciples, with the most important question that he's ever asked them, who he is. And the answer to this question will actually dictate the rest of their life. And it will dictate how they actively go out and build God's kingdom, how they live as Christians, how they interact with the world as the people of God. But this isn't just a question that the disciples should be asking themselves. It's a question that's important for every Christian and every church to be asking as well. What do people say that... uh, Who... Who do people say that Christ is? It's a badly worded sentence that I wrote down. But the question is important. Who do people think that Jesus Christ is? Who do they say that he is? And who do we as a church say that Jesus Christ is? Because the answer to that question will dictate how we live our life out for Christ or against Christ. And so with that, let's dive in. Verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? You see, Jesus and the disciples end up in this this city, which is about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. And it's likely, we don't have all the answers, but it's likely that they probably ended up there because it would get them away from the heat of the lowland area of Galilee. It was also probably to get them away from Herod and his men who were actively pursuing Jesus and looking for him and his disciples. And probably a place to have a rest and and to do these kinds of things, to engage in these kinds of conversations. And it's here that he asks this question to the disciples. He says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And if you remember, the Son of Man is a title that Jesus uses for himself more than any other title in the New Testament. It's used over 80 times in the New Testament. And it's a term that would have been very familiar with the Jews of the day. Because it was a term that was predominantly used for the Messiah. You see in Daniel 7:13, I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Now, Jews would have known what this term meant, but very few Jews actually used the term for Jesus because they didn't want to acknowledge that he was the Messiah. So that first gives us a little bit idea of the term, but it's important for us to think about the context of why Jesus would be asking his disciples this question in the first place. Jesus knows what people say about him. First, he's God, but he's he's been out, right? He's been in the crowds. He's heard the things. We've watched how he's listened to what people say, even from across a room, and interacts with what they, they say, right? So obviously, he's not like asking the disciples for the local Jesus gossip, What do people say about me? He's not wanting to like sit around the campfire and like, do people like me? What do you think? (laughs) Obviously, Jesus doesn't care about the opinions of the heretics, of the Pharisees, of the scribes. Like, he's not defined by what other people think about him. He's actually asking the disciples something deeper. He's asking how people perceive Jesus. What is their perception of him? What are their presuppositions about him? He wants the disciples to think about how people perceive himself. Because even those that rejected him as the Messiah still acknowledged there was something different about him. They came in droves. Even the Pharisees acknowledged that, that, that Jesus did things that regular people couldn't do. So Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? What is their perception about me? Verse 14, and they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. They, they, they kind of listed off. They said, well, you know, some people think you're John the Baptist. We talked about that back in Matthew chapter 14, 14, 1 and 2. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work with him, right? Like Herod couldn't get his brain wrapped around that it was, that it was the Messiah, so he assumes it's got to be John the Baptist is coming after me because we put his head on a platter. Have you ever noticed they never have that in, like, the Sunday school coloring books? Like, <laughs> John the Baptist's head on the platter. It's interesting what stories. I'm reading a book about the Old Testament right now, and the author is making this comment about there's a lot of stories and that's not an Old Testament story, obviously, but there's a lot of stories in the Bible, like the Sunday school teacher's like, well, we're just not going to... But they're important stories. John, heads, John the Baptist's head on a platter is one such story. Continuing, he says, others say he's Elijah, right? They, they say that he's the one that's prophesied to usher in the Messiah. Malachi 4.5, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And some say that Jesus was... Jeremiah, he was a revered prophet, Second Maccabees 2, 4 through 8. It was also in the same document that the prophet, having received an oracle, ordered that the tent and the ark should follow him, and then he went out to the mountain where Moses had gone up and seen the inheritance of God. Jeremiah came and found a cave dwelling, and he brought there a tent and the ark and the altar of incense, and he sealed up the entrance. Some of those who followed him came up intending to mark the way but could not find it. When Jeremiah learned of it, he rebuked them and declared, this place shall remain unknown until God gathers his people together and shows his mercy. The Lord will disclose these things in the glory of the Lord, and a cloud will appear. And they, as they were shown in the case of Moses and as Solomon, asked that the place should be specifically consecrated. Now, you might wonder where 2 Maccabees is in your Bibles. It's not, it's in the Apocrypha. So it's not canon. It's not a biblical book. Um, the Roman Catholics and, and some other, some other groups uh, consider it canon, but, but we do not. But the story highlights why they could possibly think, well, maybe he's Jeremiah, or, or maybe he's another great prophet. Look at Luke 9.19, and they answer John the Baptist, but others say Elijah and others, uh, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. So they recognize these people, they, they recognize that there's something different about Jesus. He's going around, he's healing people. He's He's defying the Pharisees. He's saying that he's Lord of the Sabbath. He's making these incredible claims. He's calling himself the Son of Man. But you see, their hearts were hard. So these are justifications when they refuse to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Messiah. He's got to be a prophet. He's got to be Elijah. He's John the Baptist coming back to get me. But not willing to acknowledge that he is the Christ. And you can see why this is problematic, right? While prophets are important... Prophecy was important. Uh, John the Baptist, other than being just like an all-around badass, eating locusts and honey and wearing leather belts and cool things, obviously important. Elijah, important. Jeremiah, important. But do you know the difference between all of them and Jesus? That's the question that Jesus is trying to get to. Do you know the difference? Yes, of course these are important men. Of course they did important things. Of course it's important for the kingdom, but do you know the difference? He's basically asking them, how does the world that rejects me justify who I am? And then he asks the most important question that he will ask the disciples in verse 15. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? I love Peter, because Peter's real. I mean, they're all real, but you can, <laughs> you can understand. I love Peter's response. In 16, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ the son of the living God. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. Christ isn't a name, it's a title. It's his title, it's Jesus' title. He is the Messiah, the Christ, the son of the living God. And Peter gives it in this no-nonsense declarative statement. There's not hesitation, there's not discussion, there's not argument. He just declares who Jesus is. And, And he's someone that's had doubts. But despite those doubts, he can make a declarative statement of who Jesus is. And and he's a man with doubts, and he's had troubles, but he has no problem declaring that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And you can see the power of this in Jesus' response to him. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. He blesses Peter. But what's interesting, and I've been thinking a lot about names these names are powerful. In, in the creation mandate, in the dominion mandate, God has given us the ability to name things. That's why your name is important. The name of Jesus is important. So the fact that he uses Peter's Hebrew name, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon the son of Jonah, he blesses Peter with his old name, reminding Peter of his inadequacy without Jesus. <laughs> He's blessing Peter's whole life. Like, it's really incredible. He blesses him from the very beginning because it was Jesus Christ that chose and changed Peter's name. He gave Peter the name Peter, right? He he changed Peter's name from Simon. So he's blessed, even despite his human inadequacy. And Jesus continues, 18 and 19, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I think there's a little bit of an unfortunate thing that takes place when pastors get to this particular verse, because they spend a lot of time talking about why Peter was not the first pope and why the Roman Catholics are heretical. Peter wasn't the first pope. The church was not built as Peter the pope. And the reason I think that is a shame that we spend so much time, not that that's not important for us to make sure it's very clear that the pope is not in the Bible and, and that the Roman Catholic Church, that their approach is not true. I think we miss something important in our application as Christians, living out for all of Christ and all of life, and we only focus on that. The point of this is that the foundation of the church is built on the disciples. The point is that the foundation of the church is built on the work of the disciples, but on Jesus Christ, right? So it's revelation to the disciples, but Jesus Christ is the foundation, the rock of their faith, the rock of ages, Christ the rock, the cornerstone, the foundation of all ages, but the disciples become his hands and his feet. They go out and do the actual work, right? Because he's going to leave. His physical body, his physical presence is going to leave. He is the foundation. They are to carry out that work. They took his message to the world, the Acts of the Apostles, a whole book in the Bible about that. The church is built on Christ and the truth of Christ alone. He is the only foundation. We, We even say here, no king but Christ. But the church is built through the work of faithful believers. The disciples were given the keys to the kingdom, the ability to bind the work on earth to heaven. It's really incredible that living their theology out with their fingertips, they were to go care for God's people, they were to go grow God's kingdom, and they were to build his church, not their church, but through their work This wasn't just some spiritual idea. This is something that exists in physical space and physical time. And I think that's why Christ gives them this reminder that the gates of hell shall not prevail against Christ's church. Gates are defensive, not offensive, right? The point is that Christ's church is secure and it's safe and it's protected. It's not theirs, it's God's. And even the gates of hell can't stop the gospel. And they're not to worry because he's given them the keys. Hell and Satan cannot prevail against God's church. And then he sends them with this charge not to tell anybody that he is the Christ. Then he strictly charges the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. We can learn so much from Peter's declaration And from this tendency to rationalize away who Christ really is for who our sinful hearts want Christ to be, because there's nothing new under the sun, people then and people now will rationalize Jesus Christ, rationalize down Jesus Christ's role as king of kings so that they can continue to do things that he specifically told them not to do. Some churches turn him into the free love hippie, right? Love is love, baby. Just do whatever you want. Others turn him into just a a historical concept. That's really crazy. I told you I worked for a liberal church, my first pastor, and there was a guy that in the denomination doesn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And he's a pastor. That's insane. And then there's a variety of other approaches that kind of live in between where the pendulum swings on both of these sides. The problem. We don't need to cover them all because the bottom line is the same for every single one of them. They actually remove the authority of who Jesus is. They don't perceive Jesus for who he truly is, and it shows in their fruits. Who do you say that I am? The Christ. The son of the living God. You see, Peter's answer is concise, and it's true, and it's strong, it's clear, it's declarative. You are the Messiah, you are the Christ. And I think the question you have to ask yourself is if somebody asked any of you today, who do you say that Jesus is, how are you going to respond? Are you going to respond declaratively, like he is the Messiah, he is the Christ, he is the King of Kings, the son of the living God? Or are you going to do the Homer Simpson thing, Rhea? walk slowly back into the bushes, you know? Family, when somebody asks us who Christ is, we should provide a clear and a no-nonsense response that should be declarative, that He is the Messiah, that He is the King over every other king, and that every knee should bend to Him. Why? Because He is the foundation and the rock of everything. And the, the reality is, when you treat Jesus Christ as anything less than King over everything, well... You end up with an approach that says that he's not actually in charge. And that's how you end up with loser theology and that the world's going to end and everything's just so terrible and there's this secular divide, there's two kingdoms and all this other stuff that, that it's not in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. You end up with this, like, well, we're just here to lose. And so just maybe if I get persecuted a bunch more, then I'm, I'll am add my pious, get a persecution patch on my patches of piety sash. And you can see like the spoiled fruits of that. It ends up in, in a joyless faith. You just treat like life and the world here right now like it's a holding place. Like it's kind of the irony. We were talking about how purgatory doesn't exist, other things that aren't in the Bible last night. And but almost like loser theology, I just this just popped in my head. So let me roll with this. <laughs> Loser theology, like the, end is gonna end, the, the world's going to end really close to now, that's basically just like this pretend purgatory of like, well, this is just really bad here, but it's going to be really great later. Streets of gold. I think heaven's going to be better than anything we can imagine. But we get to taste it right now. We get to, 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 to be part of it right now. This isn't just waiting for teleportation for somewhere else. You, family, you have been given the keys to the kingdom. And, and what you build here ties to heaven. So, so, so if you build evil, bad things, right, it looses. But if you're building for God's kingdom, it's binding. What you build here connects you to heaven. Your theology is to be lived out of your fingertips. But before you can do anything, before you can experience hope, before you can build, you have to know who Jesus is. You have to know what your perception of him is. You have to know what your presupposition is. Is he the king of kings or not? People in their hard hearts just recoil at this. We saw this in COVID. All these pastors go, oh, actually, the government's really the king. What? You're crazy. It's God's church. Not Emperor Palpatine's church. He doesn't get a say over this church. We have a responsibility to Jesus Christ because he is the king of kings. He is the the Messiah. But, But the reason I think that people try to rationalize it away is because when you acknowledge the truth, it comes with responsibilities. Because Jesus being king means he gets to set down what the law of the land is. So it would be way easier just to like believe kind of the winsome lie, oh, he's just this like really good guy and he just wants everyone to love each other and, you know, he's like a nice prophet and he didn't said really nice things and if people would just be a little bit nicer. I mean, even the Muslims acknowledge that he was a prophet. The Muslims acknowledge that he was born of a virgin. I just had my kids in apologetics interact with that for their midterm but the reality is any approach that doesn't acknowledge that his total kingship over anything strips him of his power. What does it say in the Bible? He is seated at the right hand of God the Father with all authority. Hebrew ten, twelve through 13, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. You see, He's at the right hand of God the Father with all authority and all the power and making his enemies a footstool and throwing tables over and flipping them over when he needs to, which means that when Christ is king and you are his subjects, it means he makes the rules and we follow them. We're not legalists at all. You know that. But he has provided us a path of righteousness that through the sanctification of his spirit, of the Holy Spirit, draws our hearts to want to be more Christ-like. It's him cutting through us, in, in the, and I didn't put this in my notes, but it is in here. I think this is really incredible. He said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for the flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You didn't, like, just pick your way, oh, I'm going to go do all the right things now. It, it, it's through acknowledging that Jesus Christ is king, that he cuts in your heart, and he works in your heart, and he sanctifies you. And he changes you from the inside out. You actually want to follow the path of righteousness and turn away from sin because you're drawn to him. Because it's he who picks us, works in us, sanctifies us, changes our hearts. And so what happens when our hearts change? Our actions change. Because we know the depth of our depravity. Like we, what was it that somebody said? I think I mentioned this in a sermon or an outpost. You know, I'm one bad decision away from a lifetime in jail, right? Like everybody in, in the truthfulness of their hearts knows that to be true. So we know the depth of our depravity, but that allows us to understand the overwhelming, overwhelming power of His grace. We tremble in awe and adoration because he's our ruler and he's our king and he's our wonderful counselor and our prince of peace, and he picked you. You tremble because he said, you're my daughter, you're my son, I love you. I'm going to cover your sins. You can't even do this without me. I love you so much. This is why it matters how you perceive Christ. What is your perception? Who do you say that he is? Because anything less than king of kings removes his authority here's where it gets good it gets so hopeful see not only is he king of kings but he's given you the keys to the kingdom like he's given you the keys he's given you the the secret to unlock eternal life and I don't mean like send 1995 and we'll send you back the secret he has given you the tools to open the door that makes your heart want to glorify him because he's revealed himself in his word right here Scripture, sufficient for all of life, His true Word, available to everybody. Have I mentioned lately you can't be a Christian without reading your Bible? You can't be a Christian without reading your Bible. Because wisdom comes from God. We receive, and, and if we ask God and we pray for it, He will provide us wisdom, and He's given us His revealed wisdom, His revealed truth. And that's what enables you to do the work of heaven here literally do the work of heaven here that's why it's so important to evaluate what we think about jesus i've been asking this for months now do you believe in the promises of god because if you do then the way you live your faith out externally will show that how you build heaven on earth here we will expand god's kingdom here i believe that we will conquer colorado it may not happen in my lifetime but i believe strongly that that's going to happen we are doing his work we experience the divine right here. Big crowd, small crowd, warm weather, cold weather. The body of Christ, we experience the divine in this place. We experience the divine in the world around us. I mean, even, even just look at the beauty of the snow. Look at the... I was thinking about seeds this morning again, like this, you know, all these evolutionary accidents. How a seed can break apart and it... <laughs> And take nutrients from the soil and grow into this giant tree by accident. Shenanigans, right? We know that. There's beauty. That we see the divine in the way that a seed, through its destruction, brings great life. That then can make a tree that provides more apples that are full of seeds, that can go in the ground and make more trees to make apples. I mean, we experience the divine here. So I'm so excited about reading Through New Eyes by James Jordan uh, this, as we lead up to Advent, because that's what we're, we're talking about. Like, we experience the divine just by these, these things in this room or the electricity in this microphone that can amplify my voice out of that speaker. So cool. It's all part of the interwoven part of God's kingdom that we experience here. You see, the keys, of the, the keys to the kingdom of heaven aren't just for some spiritual place in the future. We are participants in the act of creation in God's, God's world, God's universe. We are his agents. All of his creation glorifies him. I'm going to read Psalm 19 because I just love Psalm 19. And it says, to the choir master, a psalm of David, the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies above proclaim his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. It is rising from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making, the wise, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing at the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes, and the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true, and the righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from the presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So great. Peter Lightheart wrote a book called A House for My Name. It's a survey of the importance of the Old Testament. It's great. About finished half of it last night. I'm in a class with Doctor Lightheart right now and A plus. You can't understand the new without the old. The point here, right now, is that the salvation we experience is in our day to day life and being constantly made new. It's not just for heavenly places. It's bound up here on earth on earth as it is in heaven we're going to pray that in just a minute when we come to the table you have to remember it is our god who makes all things new and see we can have this certainty because of what jesus told his disciples just a sentence before when he was talking about binding things to heaven he said the gates of hell shall not prevail against it as i said before gates are used to protect things we have a gate on the side of the house, right, to keep the dog in the back and the goats in the back and the people from stealing things out of the back. Gates in general are defensive mechanisms. Not even the gates of hell can hold up against the gospel. It's pretty incredible. Christ has made his enemies his footstool. He's crushed the devil's head. Satan may get a battle once in a while, but we, we've won the war. Like We are already victoriously celebrating the fact that we have won the war because hell can never, ever prevail against God's church. And I promise you, this family, the church will not fall because it is not ours, it is his. We've just been given the keys. So by being given the keys, we are to use them responsibly. We are to use them to take dominion, to open the doors, to tell people the truth, whether they like the truth or not. We can be kind while we share the truth. We don't have to be winsome or nice. And I believe this truly, that the church is the one that sets the direction for culture. You See, when the church slides down the slippery slope of woke, the world sees that and they say, see, even the Christians believe this. And then when you don't fall down the slippery slide of woke, what happens, they point at churches like ours and say, why are you so backwards? Why, why haven't you progressed? The Methodists don't have a problem with homosexual mirage, so why do you? You are kingdom people. What you do here matters. It reflects what you believe about heaven. It reflects what you believe about God. I think we're actually at, at a crossroads for a revival and reformation. I really do. Not the Bee, South Park had an episode, there's a lot of swearing, so I can't recommend as your pastor for you to watch it, but it was wide on point. They just said it's on Paramount Plus and Not the Bee, they have, if you you don't want to hear all the swearing, you can watch the clean clips version of it on Not the Bee, but it's all about, they call it the panderverse, and it's about how these companies have gone through their DIE programs, diversity, inclusion, equity, because that's what happens, they die when they follow this plan. They pander to everybody, and they can't figure out why they're losing money. And I think it's pretty funny, because I don't think the guys who make South Park share a lot of my theological convictions, but they're not afraid to point out how stupid all of this is. And the world knows it's stupid, but they're so afraid of somebody being like mad at them or calling them not nice, that they're not willing to stand up for it being true. Well, at least the South Park guys are. And I believe that will help drag people back to say, well, then where's the truth? We know that boys can't be girls. That's insane. So where's the truth? Well, we have the truth. This is an exciting time. If you watch churches in our community, uh, especially after COVID that stood firm, they're growing, they're thriving, they're building enterprises, they're building towns, that they're, they're building businesses, and they're doing it, for the joy of the Lord. This is an exciting time. We're not thousands and thousands of people in this room, but this is a bottom-up activity. I, I talked last week, I think it was last week, about we're good leaven and we can impact the whole loaf. But we have to do that by understanding who Jesus Christ is at the very beginning, that Christ is Lord. Remember we got the billboard in downtown that said Christ is Lord? Christ is Lord. He is the king. And you're his adopted children. He picked you. You get all the rights and benefits. You're heirs. We talked about a testament last week. So this is why your perceptions and your presuppositions matter so much. Because when you acknowledge Christ as the Messiah, it impacts how you, you interact and, and perceive and, and how you go to work and how you, you raise your children and every, every part of your life, all of Christ, for all of life. And if you don't believe that Christ is truly king over everything, you will put something else in his place. Maybe it's your job or money or anything else that you've made an idol. But once, once you really truly know that he is king then you realize that the gates of hell can't even keep back the gospel. That you've literally been given the, king, the keys to the kingdom of heaven, that you've been charged to go build it here and now, and everything else in your life changes. You can love your enemies. It's the only way you can love your enemies is to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is king over kings and he saved you and depraved sinner out of your sin, and that those people, your enemies, are image bearers of God too, and what they really need is not your wrath, they need Jesus Christ's love. You can live without worry and anxiety Because you trust in the Lord. Even if it's not what you want, He will always provide what you need. And so then you know that your work here matters, that what you're called to do matters, because it must be done for the kingdom of heaven. It must be done acknowledging that Christ is king over all. So ask yourself, who do you say that Christ is? And listen to that answer, because what you believe about Jesus Christ and His Lordship will guide your actions and I'm going to tell you to declare it like Peter. Paul tells us in Romans 1 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You are to be people who are never ashamed of Jesus Christ because it is the power for everyone who believes, Jew or Gentile, to reconcile them with God. It is the power of salvation for everyone. It is the answer to the problems that we see in the world around us. Jesus Christ is the only solution. So family, declare that Jesus Christ is the son of the living God, the king of kings, your wonderful counselor, your prince of peace. It is all of Christ for all of life. And I promise you this, you will be blessed beyond measure. Let's pray. Father, we are so incredibly thankful that you sent your son. You sent him to die for us. You sent him to reconcile us to you so that we could be agents of your kingdom, building it here and now. And so, Lord, I pray that we can do that, that we do it with joy, that we do it with perseverance, even when the road ahead of us seems hard, that we know that you will always provide for us. Let us be people, Lord, that declare, that declare who Jesus Christ is to the world. May we be a light upon a hill, living all of Christ for all of life. And we pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.